Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And to me, it really seems like Queen Victoria is our classic background podcast character. We've joked before that she just pops up when you least expect her. She really does. Uh, I think somebody even suggested once that we have some stock music noise for <laughs> whenever Queen Victoria appears. But until recently, she hadn't gotten a podcast to herself. Earlier this spring, we finally did an episode on Victoria, focusing on her last great friendship, which was a relationship with her Indian teacher, Abdul Karim. And that was sort of a strange, lesser known side of Victoria's life. And it was also late in her life. By the time Karim knew Victoria, she was an elderly woman. And the period we we focused on was she was in her 70s and her 80s. It was it was late in Victoria's reign. Yeah, but listeners are usually more interested in the Queen's early years, probably largely because of the recent film Young Victoria, which I'm sure a lot of listeners have seen. It's all about romance, ribbons, and no nine kids in the picture yet for Victoria and Albert. So we're going to talk about that side of Victoria's life, her romance with her husband specifically. But we'll also revisit one of our common themes, which is that of the sad royal childhood. And to understand that, we have to first look at why Victoria became a queen in the first place. Yeah, so it's pretty remarkable that the throne went to Victoria because her father was the fourth adult son of George III. Usually, if you have that many kids... The throne isn't going to go to the daughter of the fourth son. However, George III's sons weren't that inclined to marry and produce legitimate offspring, at least. So consequently, this crisis developed in 1817. So George III and his wife Charlotte had 15 children, and for many years their eldest son had acted as regent for his insane father. He was known as the Prince Regent and later George IV. So the Prince Regent had a legit heir of his own, a daughter named Charlotte, and for a long time she was really the darling of the country, and it really seemed like the succession was guaranteed when she married the future King of the Belgians, Leopold. But in 1817, at age 21, she died in childbirth and her son was stillborn. So two generations right there wiped out at one time and the country went into a deep mourning. Okay, so there's still heirs, though. It wasn't like there just are no children around. But the heirs are mostly middle-aged princes and they don't have kids. So the race is off. The first prince of the blood, the first son of George III, uh, to make an heir, gets his debts canceled by the Prince Regent. So a pretty good deal because a lot of these guys are, are into gambling and fast living anyway. So. Yeah, but it's not as easy as it seems, right? No, it's not at all. So the Prince Regent, will obviously start with him. He's the eldest son. He was separated from his wife, so there's no chance there of another heir. The same went for the next in line, the Duke of York. And after him, there's the Duke of Clarence, the third son. So he, he took took this uh, challenge up, if you could call it that, and he married a German princess, but unfortunately, none of their children survived infancy. So the next son in line, it all came down to the Duke of Kent, and he dumped his longtime mistress and married a woman who had already had children, so he knew she was fertile. Victoria Mary Louisa, who was the daughter of the Duke of Saxe-Coburg-Salfeld, and she was also the widow of a German prince. So, bingo, 
we have our winners in this couple, finally. Yeah, it sounds so unromantic when you say fertile, when you put it that <laughs> way, but that is what it was all That's about. what was going for. And once the Duchess became pregnant, the Duke of Kent started making plans for the child to be born on English soil. They'd been living in Bavaria at the time. And he wrote that they need to get back in order to, quote, render the child my wife bears virtually as well as legally English. But the regent hadn't exactly followed through on that whole cancel your debts deal, and the Duke couldn't find the funds to move his entourage until March of 1819. And so by the time the Duchess actually got back on English soil, she was already eight months along. Yeah, they had trouble getting lodgings, too, because these brothers, the Prince Regent and the Duke of Kent, really didn't get along very well. But the Prince Regent does grant them apartments in Kensington Palace. And on May 24th, 1819, Alexandrina Victoria was born, and she was this big, healthy baby, and things looked promising. She got her name, though, the Alexandrina part, from her godfather, who was the Russian Tsar Alexander I. And the story behind that is is kind of strange and also further speaks to this feud between the brothers. The regent had forbidden Victoria's parents to use any of the standard names that royal baby girls were being called, Charlotte, Elizabeth, Georgina. You can kind of see his rationale behind Charlotte not having the new heir named the same thing as his deceased daughter, but still a weird stipulation. Yeah, and as a result, the people of England still weren't entirely sure what her name was, even up to the morning of her accession at age 18. Yeah, Alexandrina or Victoria, even though she had actually always gone by Victoria as a girl in in her home. But the little princess was really born just in the nick of time, though, for this family, because only eight months after her birth, her father, the Duke of Kent, died. And so six days after that, George III died, and that made the prince regent, finally, George IV. And that made Victoria third in line to the throne after her two uncles. But she gets even closer as the years go by, and these uncles start to to die off. When the eldest of the two uncles died in 1827, she was obviously one step closer. And eventually, when George IV died and her uncle, the Duke of Clarence, became William IV, Victoria was next in line from the throne. So from birth, she was raised to be a likely queen, although not a guaranteed queen. It it You still didn't know if somebody might have a kid between uh, her birth and, and when she came to the throne. Yeah, but it's interesting. Even though she was raised as a queen the whole time, nobody really told her of her position until she was about 10 years old. Though there's that classic story where she had a family tree inserted into a history book and studied it and suddenly pronounced, I will be good. And so that's probably likely untrue. Yeah, there are two competing versions of that story. It's a pretty good story, but it's a little hard to back up. And Victoria herself remembered the realization as being a lot more dramatic. And and that makes sense to me for this girl who was not raised to to know she was going to be queen. She said, I cried much on learning it and even deplored this contingency. Yeah, but it seems like a really natural reaction, as you pointed out, because her life turned out to be pretty rigid because of this future of hers. Um, she had lots of lessons, languages like Italian and Latin, writing, history, music, drawing, arithmetic, geography, religion. She learned all kinds of things. Busy so, day. Yeah, so maybe that wasn't so bad, but it did make her life pretty busy. But she also didn't get a lot to eat. Uh, she had bread and milk served to her in a silver bowl, and she had a really early bedtime, lots of exercise, and most notably, strict isolation. Yeah, so we could we could 
add the lessons and the not much food and the early bedtime and the exercise into the, that's kind of standard for the lives of many British aristocratic children of this time. But this strict isolation was something unique. And it was the the design of her mother's companion and advisor, a guy named Sir John Conroy and the Duchess herself. And they called it the Kensington system. And it was the way Victoria was brought up. It was a course of rigorous private studies and isolation from her peers. And consequently, Victoria's main companion during her early years was her elder half-sister, Theodora, her, her mother's daughter by her first marriage. And after Theodora left to marry, since she was quite a few years older than Victoria, uh, Victoria was pretty distraught and turned to her governess, a woman named Louise Leitzen. And she really became her, her main companion and just sort of her, her defense against her, this conniving Conroy character who was such a strong influence in her household. Yeah, and she really needed it because Conroy even kept her away from her own family. He encouraged the Duchess to keep Victoria away from her, quote, wicked uncles. And by isolating Victoria from her paternal family, the royal family, right, Conroy hoped to create a better position for himself should William IV die before Victoria's majority. And that was really the plan, because hopefully if hopefully for Conroy, if William IV died, then the Duchess of Kent would become regent. And because Conroy controlled the Duchess of Kent, he would essentially rule England. So it was all a play for power. Definitely. And at one point, when Victoria was sick with a serious illness, Conroy and the Duchess even tried to pressure the 16-year-old princess into extending her minority from age 18 to age 21. She refused, though. Yeah, with the help of her governess, actually, that was something that really endeared the woman to her. But the Kensington system obviously couldn't maintain this strict privacy con constantly. I mean, she was a queen to be. And so in 1830, the Duchess of Kent decided that she wanted to sort of validate her own education system, but also show off her daughter to Victoria's future people. So she set up this series of examinations by three clerics and Victoria performed really well. The Duchess was validated because I think the cleric said, yeah, we we couldn't, you couldn't do anything better. She's being educated just as she should be. Uh, But the Duchess also arranged for Victoria. Victoria to travel some and see her country. And that was a pretty pretty major event in young Victoria's life. Yeah, and in 1832, before Victoria toured the Midlands and North Wales, she was given a journal by her mother, and she kept a journal for the rest of her life. I think we talked about that a lot in the Victoria and Abdul Karim episode. Yeah, so we know that she eventually even starts like journaling in Hindustani, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, but what's interesting is when you look at these early journals, sometimes the politely restrained entries in Victoria's journals of that time period contrast with the, quote, behavior books that she kept from 1830 and on for her governess. And these books basically, I mean, you told me a little bit about them, Sarah. Yeah, it's basically like her governess wanted her to judge herself. So write down her her opinion on her conduct, on her how she performed in her studies for the day and do that every single day. So a, a real self-judgment. So just to illustrate some of the differences you'd see between the two sometimes, um, in one behavior book entry from September 1832, she wrote that she had been very, 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 very horribly naughty with many exclamation points. All caps, too. All caps. <laughs> but on the same day as the horribly naughty entry, all she wrote in her own journal is that the heat was intolerable. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this gives you sort of a sense of Victoria as a young girl. She's 
she's sort of dramatic. She has this dramatic flair to her, maybe melodramatic, some would say. But she's also good at, at either concealing things or, or just sort of sort of playing it cool, you know, not divulging everything in her journals, maybe because, I don't know, afraid a parent might read it, or just practicing for the restraint she would need as queen. So she had a lonely childhood, but not a completely miserable one. She had a ton of pets. She liked plain dress up. She liked writing. She wrote compositions inspired by popular novels. And she also watercolored and would paint costumes and poses after attending the theater or concerts. And she was also strongly attached to her uncle Leopold, her mother's brother and the one-time husband of the Charlotte who had died in childbirth, the one we mentioned earlier in this episode. He lived in Surrey until becoming king of the Belgians in 1831. And it's through Leopold's work that she meets her future match. Yeah, so only three months after Victoria's birth, her mother and Leopold's other brother, the Duke of Saxe-Coburg-Salfeld, also had a child named Albert. And it's re- it's really kind of cute. Victoria's born at the beginning of the summer and Albert's born at the end of the summer. But Albert was the second son with no fortune coming his way. So all along, from his birth, his family kind of hoped for this match with cousin Victoria, since she clearly had some good things coming to her. So for Victoria's 17th birthday, the plans... The family starts to try to put this plan into action, and Albert and his brother Ernest and his father all visited England. But Albert was kind of an awkward teen at this point. He sounds really awkward, actually. He had fainting spells. Um, he didn't really like dancing. And Victoria was, was sort of a vivacious young girl, even though she was raised in such strict isolation. And she really had more of a crush on these three visiting Persian princes anyway. So... We're going to put Albert on the back burner. He didn't make a great first impression. but Apparently, she put him on the back burner as well. she did too. But um, we need to move on anyways, because Victoria had some pretty big changes coming her way. Yes. Early on June 20th, 1837, King William IV died. He had managed to stay alive just long enough for his niece to reach majority. She was barely 18 when he passed away. And after being told of her new position, Victoria met with the Privy Council, And they were really impressed with her. She carried herself well. She spoke well. Plus, it was sort of romantic to have this teenage queen. Well, and she's really an unknown quantity at this point because of the Kensington system and the way she's been raised. But for Victoria, it was just a total relief. She was free at last, and she moved to Buckingham Palace. And for the first time, she had a room to herself, and she's sort of on bad terms with her mother because of the way she had brought John Conroy into her life and all of that and pushed her mother away into faraway apartments in Buckingham Palace and sent Conroy off entirely and really enjoyed her independence and sort of lived it up as as you might expect a teenager too, but later said it was the least sensible and satisfactory time in her whole life. So she she clearly realized that she overindulged a little bit in her newfound freedom, didn't maybe take her role as seriously as, as she wished she had later. And there were some errors that she made in that early period. She started a close relationship, for example, with Lord Melbourne, then prime minister. He boosted her self-confidence, but also shaped her politics. She became a Whig at this time and taught her to partly ignore social problems or write them off as the issues of agitators. Yeah, and that partisanship, which, of course, the queen was not supposed to be overtly partisan like that, really led to trouble. And two crises broke out in 1839. 
And the first was the Hastings affair. And this is just sort of a, a scandalous would-be pregnancy story. But basically, Victoria forced Lady Flora Hastings, who was a maid of honor with Tory connection, so divergent from Victoria's own politics, to undergo a pregnancy examination. And it turned out that Hastings was not pregnant. That was sort of scandal number one. Then within a year, Hastings died of a tumor that hadn't been diagnosed by Victoria's physician. Scandal number two. While that's going on, though, there's another another issue brewing. Yeah, the bedchamber crisis, which occurred when Melbourne resigned in 1839 and was replaced by conservative Sir Robert Peel. But Victoria wanted to keep her old Whig ladies of the bedchamber so Peel wouldn't take office. And this caused a huge scandal. Yeah. So Victoria's desire to be independent, that's probably kind of at root of the two scandals we just mentioned. But Independent as in single, too. That desire did not go over well with Parliament, with her people. She needed an heir. So Victoria reluctantly started to interview eligible Protestant princes. (laughs) It was kind of slim pickings. So in 1839... She invited Cousin Albert back to England from his studies at the University of Bonn. And he's not an awkward teenager anymore. Victoria is smitten. She wrote in her journal, Albert really is quite charming and so extremely handsome. A beautiful figure, broad in the shoulders and a fine waist. My heart is quite going. Yeah, he was the one and she liked what she saw. And since he was not allowed to, Victoria proposed marriage just a few days later. And the couple were married that February, February. February 10th, 1840. And it wasn't the most popular marriage match that could have been, at least at first. Parliament wasn't pleased that the crown was about to get even more German. That's how they saw it. The couple even spoke German at home. So that was a big deal. And also the British aristocracy found Albert to be overly moral, too academic and too artistic. But the marriage also ironed out some of Victoria's controversies for her. People were happy, at least, that she was married and there would be an heir in the future. Yeah. And it certainly changed the way Victoria planned to rule which we're going to look at as well. Yeah, and this is about where the movie Young Victoria leaves off. I think they have the conjoined desks, and it's super cute, but that's not exactly how things were going. So the desks did exist, though. I was pleased to learn that. So for the first few months, Victoria was really determined to to stay independent. She, She liked ruling on her own, and so they did work at those conjoined tandem desks, but Albert only got to blot her signature, which for a very ambitious and talented and educated man, this was pretty frustrating. But of course, we all know Victoria starts to have lots of kids and biology really changed the course of things for her. She got pregnant within weeks of the wedding and bit by bit, Albert started to take on more important tasks. He would send dispatches. He'd attend meetings with ministers. He even got the key to the secret boxes. And over time, he also started to change the way Victoria thought about things and affect her politics even. Her governess was dismissed, who had been the former main influence in her life. And in 1842, there was an attempt on her life. And and the kids just kept on coming, too. Right. Well, there were so many of them. We're just going to list off their names really quickly. Princess Royal Victoria, also known as Vicky, Prince of Wales, um, the later Edward VII, Princess Alice, Prince Alfred, Princess Helena, Princess Louise, Prince Arthur, Prince Leopold, and Princess Beatrice. And the grandchildren started arriving only two years after her last child was born. So... (laughs) 
So, she did not have a gap in mothering, so to speak. No, she really didn't. And because she was out of commission so much of every year, every single year, Albert really took on an almost regent-like role. And he did, in fact, get a regency bill that allowed him to act in the event of Victoria's death or incapacity. But by 1845, an observer named Charles Greville wrote, quote, It is obvious that while she has the title, he is really discharging the functions of the sovereign. He is the king to all all intents and purposes. Yeah, and Albert saw his role, though, as advisor to the Queen. As he later told the Duke of Wellington, his goal was to, quote, to be the natural head of the family, superintendent of her household, manager of her private affairs, her sole confidential advisor in politics, and only assist in her communications with the officers of the government, her private secretary and permanent minister. But he'd do all that at the expense of his own identity and pretty much working himself to death in the process. Yeah, so he wasn't going after titles or or public recognition. He just wanted to play this role and do it for Victoria and to, to hopefully do good, or at least that's how that that's how he saw it. So their marriage, though, was generally considered to be a happy one and something that really set a model for people in the Victorian era. They focused heavily on educating their children. They had these sort of middle class tastes, especially Victoria, because Albert did, after all, really like science and technology and art and that sort of thing. But Victoria liked reading Dickens novels and going to circuses and seeing waxworks, that sort of thing. And The couple also liked their privacy, and they're really famous for that. Albert built residences at Osborne and Balmoral Castle for them to escape to. And and as we I think we mentioned in the Kareem Abdul episode, those retreats really become even more important, maybe to Victoria in her in her later life. Right. But Victoria also shouldn't be thought of as the model Victorian wife and mother figure. She had serious postpartum depression at times, and she did not like being pregnant. And she really didn't like babies that much in general. She didn't even really like kids. She called pregnancy the, quote, shadow side of marriage and compared herself to a cow or dog while she was pregnant. So, So that's kind of shocking, I'd say, coming from someone who her identity is all tied with these family portraits of her and Albert and all of their little tiny kids sitting around the Christmas tree or sitting around at home relaxing. It, it does seem different, but I mean, it's just to show that this couple had an effect on, on their country for sure, but they also led a private personal life too. Yeah, but part of her dislike of childbirth was that she wished she had gotten more time with Albert alone. In late 1861, Albert, who was 42 years old at the time, but much older looking, raced off to Cambridge to chastise his eldest son over an affair he'd had with a prostitute. And after that, Albert caught pneumonia and took to bed. Doctors diagnosed what he had as typhoid fever, but that was probably a mistake, um, modern analysis shows. Well, there hadn't been typhoid fever in the area at all. Right. And so, but at the time, that's what they thought it was. And they dosed him with brandy until he died. And though Victoria always blamed the death on their son, Albert had known for some time that he wasn't feeling very well. So it was probably stomach cancer, I think is what we now think. He had, he had definitely been sick with something. But Victoria, as as we talked about in the last episode, and as most people know, went into deep mourning after Albert's death. And she she said of him, without Albert, everything loses its interest. But we need to talk about their legacy, too, because the idea of the, the 
happy couple, Victoria and Albert, almost emerges more after the fact, because while alive, Albert had been often unpopular and sometimes even used as a scapegoat because he was foreign. Victoria's decision to name him as Prince Consort, for instance, in 1857 had been terribly mocked. She she tried to justify it by saying, well, our adult children are going to start to outrank him because he's a foreign prince. But people just thought it was a ridiculous decision. But over time, it became clear that he had greatly assisted Victoria and helped shape her monarchy and that their happy and strong marriage had influenced the country's tastes and morals. So people started to think on the couple fondly, especially by the queen's old age and by the height of her popularity. So the perception of them together definitely changed over the years. Yeah, and and looking back to they left quite a legacy. Albert's grand achievement was, of course, the 1851 Great Exhibition at the Crystal Palace. And even over the years that people looking back on that realized what a high point it had been for England. And another great legacy of theirs is the Victoria and Albert Museum, which sort of originally came out of the Great Exhibition, but was was named the Victoria and Albert Museum really, really late in Victoria's life. Clearly a sort of touching tribute for her, I'm sure. Yeah, I have to say, I personally love this story. I think it's a cool love story. It is a it is a nice love story. And I mean, I, I feel like so many of the royal couples we talk about just have kind of miserable lives. So it's nice to find one that... that um, they really seem happy together. Yeah, and they stayed together. Talking about love and relationships is actually a great way to ease on into listener mail. We actually picked today's listener mail because it goes along with our topic today and also because it's kind of a first for us, don't you think, Sarah? It's definitely a first. It's a letter from Jim in Akron, Ohio, and he writes, Dear Dublina and Sarah. I grew up on a romantic story of President McKinley's proposal to his future wife, Ida. They often took carriage rides together during their courtship, and after one such ride, McKinley lamented how every one of these outings ended with them leaving in opposite directions. When she shared the sentiment, he said, quote, So what do you say we go the same way from now on? And they were happily married thereafter. I haven't been able to find any confirming source for this story, so it may just be cherry tree folklore, but I was wondering if you might be able to let us know. While you're at it, could you please announce that I love Julie very much, and I want to go the same way with her for the rest of my life? She's my best friend and true soulmate, as proven by the fact that she'll be impressed that I proposed to her via Stuff You Missed in History class. Julie, will you marry me? So a podcast proposal, and we are now all eagerly awaiting uh, a, a response. Find out what happened from Jim and Julie. Uh, definitely let us know, guys. And I guess, that I mean, that's all we have to say. That's the way to end the podcast today. I don't think anything we could say would be cooler than that. So we might as well just get out of here. Um, if you would like to write us um, and tell us any more about Victoria, any questions that you have, if you have the answer to the McKinley story. I was not able to find it, Jim. I'm sorry, but if anyone else knows about McKinley's proposal to Ida, please write in. We're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com, or you can look us up on Facebook or on Twitter at Mist in History. Yeah, and if you want to see pictures and learn a little bit more about other nice historical couples, we have a great slideshow on our homepage. You can find it by searching for historical couples at www.HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Tomorrow.
The House Network's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.